We are in our third week, I believe now, of our Unbelief Sermon Series. And what this series is, is an, sort of an invitation to the skeptical. And that isn't just the outsider to faith, the invitation to the skeptical within. Uh, the moments of doubt we have, those things that we go, gosh, I, I know I love Jesus and I believe in this, but this is a hard topic for me and I don't really understand how this works. Our aim for these seven weeks is to not only uh, make a proper argument in front of those of our friends that would say, this Jesus thing isn't for me, but also to make an argument to the heart of the believer to say, A, may this deepen your faith, and B, when you're in that next tough conversation, we hope to give you a couple of ways, a couple of tools, a couple of um, ways of speaking that will help that conversation go better so you don't feel like you're uh, unequipped as you're out there spreading the goodness of Jesus. So, this week we're talking about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is fun. A 2007, so a decade now, Barna Research Project, they did a research project with thousands of unbelievers, and they asked them, what is it that keeps you from believing in Jesus? What is it that keeps you from becoming a Christian? And what was super interesting about this is the top six responses, it was one of those forms where you can check all that apply, and the top six responses had nothing to do with the evidence of God, had nothing to do with I can't believe that God exists, or what about evolution, or what about dinosaurs? It's, none of them had to do with anything evidential. The top six reasons were all about Christian behaviors. Number one, 91% checked anti-homosexual, 87% checked judgmental, 85% checked hypocritical. That is what the outside world looks at a church and sees. Basically, modern people reject Christianity by and large not because of Jesus, but because of the behavior and attitudes of Christians. A hypocrite, if, if you want to look at where that word actually comes from, a hypocrite is just a stage actor. A hypocrite is a stage actor. It's somebody who's playing a part. And so when somebody uh, lobs the grenade of hypocrite at Christianity, what they're saying is you say you believe one thing, but you do something else. You say you believe one thing, but you're acting a different way. Now, this is interesting for us, and we have to kind of turn our lens on ourselves. and it's hard to be self-critical. And, and what's always interesting is after um, a terrorism event, Uh, Islamic terrorism, you'll hear talking heads on television say Islam is a a religion of violence. And then you'll see the talking head who represents Islam going, no, Islam is a a religion of peace. These people are taking it out of context. Don't blame us. And then the other talking head says, no, 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 I have too much evidence. All of Islam is violent. And we, we hear that often. And it's funny because if Christians would do the same to ourselves... We wouldn't be able to say that that Christianity is a religion of peace either. We have a 2,000-year history that contains the Crusades and the Inquisitions, that more recently contains a bombing of abortion clinics or mass shootings done in the name of Jesus somehow. A a little guy named Adolf Hitler claimed in Mein Kampf to be a Christian and then went to kill millions of Jews. And so we can't look rightly at other religions and go, well, you can't be that because your followers do this. If we don't look at ourselves and go, well, we had a disconnect. And this is where this hypocrisy comes from, because what we see in others, we refuse to see in ourselves. And it doesn't mean that Adolf Hitler was a true Christian. What it means is the world outside looks at Christianity and goes, I don't know, you guys say one thing, you do another. This is hard. The reality is we all fall short, and we cannot live up to the teachings of Jesus. None of us in and of ourselves can perfectly live up to the teachings of Jesus. So here's where we're going to start, and here's where we're going to end. I'm going to make a statement, and and I think this is what the idea for today is. When I make my life about me and my goodness, hypocrisy shows me to be a liar, because I can't always be good. When I make my life about Jesus and his grace, hypocrisy shows him to be the Savior. 
And as we make this shift about how we interact with the world and, and the representation we are as ambassadors of Christ, what we have to stop doing is saying, I am the representative of Christianity, and start saying, I'm a Christian, and look to the cross. When we make it about ourselves, our hypocrisy shows us to be liars, and people are right to go, I don't know if I want anything to do with that. When we make it about Jesus, and we point back to Jesus, my hypocrisy shows the need for a Savior and shows him to be it. So let's get into the scripture in uh, Matthew chapter 23. We'll put it up on the screen here. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you do not have a Bible and you would like one, we have a whole shelf out in the uh, foyer full of these. You are welcome to take one or ten or as many as you would like. We would love for you to have that. Scripture says in Matthew 23, 13, Jesus is speaking. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. But when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 23, Jesus continues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out gnats and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also, you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that your sons, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Ouch. How do you think Jesus feels about hypocrisy? We could spend literally years unpacking the statements of woe, hypocrite, right here on Sunday morning. We could take 30 minutes on each one for the next couple of years and not even get to the bottom of that cup. Jesus feels very strongly about people who claim one thing and do another. We're going to focus this morning on that last verse we read, on verse 33, where he says, You brood of vipers. Jesus is calling the Pharisees, these scribes, these teachers of the law, these righteous, like the the, the top Jews of the day, the top religious people of the day, he is calling them snakes, serpents. In our modern world, if we adapted this and we said, well, what would this look like in the modern world? This is going to be hard to hear, but it's true. Pharisees are church people. They're church people who try to look like we do the right thing, but our motives aren't quite there. And so whenever we see Pharisees, you know, when I first became a Christian, I'd be like, man, those Pharisees are terrible. And someone had to tap me on the shoulder and be like, you know, the Pharisees were the religious people. They were the ones who thought they knew how to do stuff, but they didn't have the spirit right. They didn't have the intention right. They didn't love God more than they loved their own ideas. And I thought, so we're them? And the person said, yeah, on our our worst days, that's us. Religious people are the Pharisees. Jesus often saves his greatest venom for uh, religious people. 
He compares them to serpents. And this is super interesting. This is, is not accidental language on the part of Christ. It was a serpent whose lies first tipped the domino of the fall. In the garden, if you go back to the book of Genesis, the serpent comes and convinces Adam and Eve that they ought to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It tells a lie. It tells them if you eat it, you'll die. No, God says that. But if you eat it, you'll live. You'll be like gods. And if you can be like gods, then you got it made. And so as the story goes, Adam and Eve eat of the apple and sin enters the world as they have betrayed God in order to be like gods themselves. Jesus looks at those around him, at the religious people of the day, and he says, you brood of vipers, you serpents, you're just like it. You're using religious means for personal gain. You're using religious means to become like gods yourself. What he's saying is you're you're leveraging the rules of religion for personal power and wealth. The rules of religion for personal power and wealth. I've mentioned before in archaeological digs, they find um, scales from uh, where the temple would have stood that are off by a a significant meter, 20, 30% off, that the religious people of the day who ruled over the temple courts and who oversaw the sale of goods and and services there, they they were cheating the faithful. That the people with power had no check to their authority, and so they began to leverage their power even for their own personal monetary gain. And what Jesus tells them is they've been ignoring his calls for justice. They've been ignoring the, the scripture's need for justice to look out for the poor, to look out for the widow, to look out for the orphan. And what they've been doing instead is leveraging all of the rules of religion for their own gain. When we start to apply this invective that Jesus delivers, it gets personal and it can be hard at first. But what, what we would say is that deep in each of our own hearts is the lie of the viper, the lie of the serpent, the lie of the snake. That each of us in our own heart, we have that in us, that ability to believe the lie. That if we just leverage some of this for our own gain, it'll be okay. If we just get a little more status, a little more power, a little more wealth, a little more whatever, and, and we, we can do it while still looking clean on the outside, no one will even know. Whether you know it or not, your real problem is not what you are doing, but why you do it. For every believer, what the problem is, it's never, the problem is never what you're doing, the problem is why you're doing it. It's the, the desire that leads to the dysfunction. Tim Keller says, you can mistrust God either by being very good or by being very bad. You can distrust God by being very good or very bad. So when you look around the world, you go, oh, these people are doing bad things and these people are doing good things. They must love God more. And what we see in the Pharisees is those who claim to love God the most by doing good things actually had totally wildly different intentions that Jesus called them a brood of vipers. You can distrust God by being really, really good. It is our selfishness that allows us to use even good behavior for nefarious means. That's the root of hypocrisy. The root of hypocrisy is using something intended for good and having our own intention for something else. Because if you think about it this way, no one isn't a believer in in Jesus because of Christians' well-intended mistakes. No one looks at a Christian's well-intended mistake and goes, well, yeah, I won't follow Jesus because of that person. They really tried to do the right thing, but it didn't quite work out for them. Hypocrisy is not rooted in well-intended mistakes, but in leveraging truth for power. You look around our world, and you see that in crystal clarity these days. People are leveraging the gospel for their own financial power, or societal power, or cultural power. 
you watch political races as they heat up, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on. When people are talking to evangelicals, they quote the same verses. You have no idea. But they're applying to me that they must be a Christian. If they're a Christian, then I should vote for them. If I vote for them, then they'll give power. And, and I don't know what they really believe. I see a lot of uh, really unfortunate examples recently of people leveraging truth for sexual power. In the evangelical world, with prominent Protestant pastors left and right, leveraging their power to create silence among the people that they, they lead while taking advantage of them. There's a big story that came out recently about the Pennsylvania, the, the priest, the Catholic priest scandal in Pennsylvania, where thousands of victims result from a group of people, concerted people, deciding to use their religious standing for leverage as sexual power over others, over the weak and the vulnerable. People who are leveraging truth and power, truth and position for power, this is the root of hypocrisy. How many people reject our faith not because of the Jesus we follow, but because of the way that we follow? It's funny, we use the rules to our advantage in these things. When I was in eighth grade, I have a confession to make, an admission to make. I, um, as far as I know, I'm the only eighth grader to ever get uh, directly ejected from a basketball game at the Catholic school that I was attending. I um, have always been big, obviously. I mean, I was a big kid growing up. So, um, oh, I was one of the smaller kids, let's be honest. Okay, so I play point guard as one of the smaller kids, and, and there was a kid on the other team. As we ran down for a fast break, I was kind of behind the play, and he was on the ground from some other skirmish that happened. As I'm walking by him, he like leg whips me to trip me. And no one sees it. Everybody's looking at the other side of the court. And I said, okay, we'll see how this goes. Whatever, whatever you think. So a couple plays later, the ball goes out of bounds. I am the one that throws the ball back in bounds. It's the out of bounds play. So I set up the out of bounds play. I tell everybody to run this certain play. And they're all looking real serious. And guess who walks up to guard the out of bounds play? Who stands right up against the line and starts doing this to make sure I can't throw the ball in? this big jerk, right? And so I look at him and I think, I am going to show you, just watch what I can do. You think you're funny to trip me when no one's looking? Guess what? Everybody's looking and watch what's going to happen. You have five seconds to throw the ball in. The referee hands you the ball and he begins to count one, two, and I just sit there like this, three, four, and right before he says five, I bring the ball back as far as I can and I launch it right off his face. Don't cross me. Okay. The ball goes out of bounds. It's still our ball. I was like, eh, out of bounds on you. Our ball still. The referee doesn't know what to do. The guy's crumpled in a bloody heap on the ground. I broke his nose. And the referee comes up to me. He goes, I think you have to leave. I was like, but that's well within the rules, sir. I don't, I don't think you understand what I've done here. It's still our ball, right? And he goes, uh, yeah, you're going to need to leave. And so I started walking to the bench. He goes, no, no, no. Like, you're, you're ejected. I don't know how to even do the signal, but you're, you have to leave. This little Catholic school gym, there's not like a locker room. So I literally walk out of this place at 730 on a Tuesday night or something, and I end up on the playground, and I'm on the swings by myself waiting for the game to finish. It's kind of an ugly story. But what happened is I leveraged the rules for my revenge. I leveraged, it was totally legal. What I did was totally within the rules of the game. It was totally fine. 
He did something illegal, didn't get caught. I said, I'm going to show you in my righteousness. I said, this is within the rules of the game. Just watch. And my heart's intention was never to be within the rules of the game. My heart's intention was to do something terrible. And I did. I leveraged the rules for my own power, for my own gain, for my own revenge. And this is what the hypocrisy in our lives looks like. It's not usually as bloody and obvious as that, but it's subtle. So we are, we need to own this, we are on one level or another, unless you are perfect, we are hypocrites. And yet, we are a people saved by grace, by no good work of our own. We are people whose lives were defined by stumbling and sin, by destruction and deviance, and Jesus erased it all and rewrote a new story and redefined us. And in him we are whole and we are clean and we are defined by his righteousness and not our own regrets. So the mistakes we make along the way and the times when we did leverage truth for power, that stuff is covered by the blood of Christ. So what, we, what do we say to those who watch our lives now and see them as inconsistent with Jesus? The people who still look at our lives and go, yeah, but you're not quite there. We look to Leo Tolstoy, the 19th century Russian writer, who I wish I could say it better than him, but I can't, so we're just going to read what he says. He says, attack me rather than the path I follow. And which I point out to anyone who asks me where I think it lies. If I know the way home and I am walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I am staggering from side to side? Tolstoy is referring to this this path, this way. Jesus said, I am the way. And you and I, as we drunkenly stumble through life from side to side, making mistake after mistake, The thing we should be begging those around us to pay attention to is not our mistakes, but the the end result that we're aiming for. It isn't about me and whether I can be good enough. It's about Jesus and whether he was good enough. Our ongoing imperfection is covered by ongoing grace. And so here around covenant, we say imperfect people are wanted. If you show up here and you have all your stuff figured out, this might not be the church for you. Because once you get to know us all, we're all pretty imperfect. And yet we follow a perfect savior who covers that. Ours is a faith that goes into the ditch to rescue those who've fallen off life's path, and ours is a church of recovering scoundrels and cheaters and gossips and liars and drunks. Around here we say it's okay not to be okay, just don't stay there. It's okay not to be okay, just be making progress. This is a place to be known and encouraged. If you say the church is full of hypocrites, we would say we agree. Welcome to our weekly recovery group. This is where we start. This is why confession is so important in the New Testament, that that this is this thing that keeps coming up is this idea of confession, that if we are not sober about our own appraisal of our lives, then we begin to think that we are God-like in and of ourselves. Confession is not like a rule to be done in order to give some sort of ritualistic cleaning. Confession is an attitude of the heart that says, I am wildly imperfect, and I wake up every single day needing Christ to cover me still. Mark Clark says the reason that we all show up together on a Sunday morning is not evidence uh, of Christianity being false. Our, our joint hypocrisy is not evidence of Christianity being false. It's actually evidence that it's working, that there's this thing drawing us into something deeper. For us to represent Jesus like we want to, we have to recognize the lie of the serpent within us. It persists. It says you can't trust God to have your best interests at heart. You can't trust him. That's what the lie is. You can't trust God. Why don't you take control back of that? Why don't you pull that back in your hands? Why don't you get that back in your life? Don't give that to God because you can't trust him. That was the original lie. God says you can't eat from the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't trust him. You better go eat and just make sure. 
Think about what the, the knowledge of good and evil was actually about. That Adam and Eve in the garden, they lack something that God has. God has a certain power over them, doesn't he? He has the knowledge of good and evil, and they lack that. And so to go up and pull the apple is to go and grab for power and go, I want what God has. I want to be just a little bit more godlike. You can live generously, but money is power. You could avoid gossip, but information is power. You can practice mutual submission in your marriage, but sexuality is power. Jesus lays out how we should live and and collapse hundreds of Old Testament commandments into one. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is, is, is basically updating the first commandment. From Exodus. Shall have no other gods before me. All the other commandments, everything else that comes after Exodus 23 is just a descendant of the one command. Have no other gods before me. Love me with everything you have and the rest will flow. When we exchange truth for power, we trade in what was intended for God's glory and we use it for our own because we're aiming to be gods ourselves. Hypocrisy is almost always evidence of violating that first commandment. I don't lie because I think God wants me to do it. I lie because I'm covering my tracks. I've got to protect something in myself. We don't steal. We don't cheat. We don't, we don't practice deception because we think God wants us to do it. We do it because there's something in us that we are trying to, we have agency over our own lives. I'm in control of my own life. I will make my own path. And it's always pulling back control and attempting to be just a little bit more godlike. It just reveals in us that our hearts and minds are are wrongly ordered at times. Wrongly ordered hearts and minds lead to wrongly ordered lives. They lead to a witness then that's really incongruent that the world looks at and goes, I don't don't know if I trust what you're selling because I've seen you live. So the question becomes, when I fall, where should the world look? And I would say the proper posture of a believer, the proper posture of us as followers of Jesus Christ is to point to God as the evidence of God's greatness and favor, not to point to our lives. So on our best day, we're we're humbled that God would work through us. On our worst day, we're humbled that God loves us and accepts us unconditionally. On our best day, God's grace is the source of our goodness. On our worst day, his grace covers our wild imperfection. But you see what the subject of those are? That's always about God. And when we make our lives about us is when we get off the tracks, and it's when people have a right to go, you're not living that what you say. When we make our lives about God, even when we fail, it's about God. That's why when you give your testimony, when you tell your story to somebody, the the subject of the story should be God. I was once, but now I am. But it's not about the I. It's about the thing in between that changed the whole story. Let me tell you what happened when I met Jesus. It's not the job of Christians to replicate Jesus' perfection, but rather to rest in it and live out of it. It's not the job of Christians to try to be perfect because we're not going to get there. Our job is to rest in the perfection of Jesus, to point the perfection of Jesus, to live in the perfection of Jesus. So the question we ask is, who is your life ultimately about? When I make my life about me and my goodness, hypocrisy shows me to be a liar. When I make my life about Jesus and his grace, hypocrisy shows him to be the Savior. Who is your life ultimately about? What is the goal of your goodness? 
but to glorify God, glorify self. Where in your life have you believed in the lie that maybe if you just take some control back, maybe if you just have one bite, maybe if you, you don't have to give that away, you can keep it. Jesus loved us so much that he took up the cross. The great beauty of the life of Jesus Christ is he didn't use his life to gain power, but he gave up ultimate power so that we might gain life. Our upside-down kingdom that we inhabit because of our bottom-up leader, because of the Savior who chose not to come in as a military leader on a horse and a chariot, who chose to come in on a cross and say, I will give up all of my power so that you might have life. So my prayer today is that those that we love who are skeptical and weary from watching our imperfection might more clearly after today see us in Jesus. That as we stumble and as we fail, as we try really hard and even sometimes get it right, that won't be accounted to us and our goodness, but it will be accounted to God and his grace. And when we get it wrong, that it will be so clearly seen that we rest in something greater than ourselves. And then the clearest witness we can have as believers is to say, yes, woe to me, scribe, Pharisee, hypocrite, that there are days I am just off. And there are days I wish I could say my intentions were right, but they weren't. I'm going to own it. I'm going to rest in the fact that Jesus came and gave up all power to give me life, and I'm living in that life as much as mine is a failure at times. And in that humility, in that place of submission to others, we can pray that they might see Christ through us instead of trying to see Christ um, through our actions. Our hope is that skeptics around Bowling Green, that skeptics in our neighborhood, that people around us would look at us and really not even see us at all. But they would see lives that point to nothing less than Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are uh, generous beyond our imagination, the way you grace us. Father, in our moments of deepest imperfection, you still loved us enough to send Jesus. And so, in a moment when we feel the sting of all of our hypocrisy or the sting of our failures and the sting of not quite measuring up, God, at my prayers, you would wash over us anew with grace that we would know your presence in this place, that we would remember that we are not defined by our failures anymore, but you have redefined us by your son, by his resurrection and his perfection. Lord, we pray for those in our community that have seen our lives and distrusted you as a result. God, may we point more clearly to you, both in the good days and the bad. May our behaviors and our actions May the intentions of our life be to make much of you. And as we do so, God, would you get us out of the way so that those we love who need to know you might see you for who you really are. That as we stumble from side to side on this journey towards you, that it would ultimately be about you. Father, thank you for calling us together in community, to allowing us to be this recovery group of sorts that sort of jointly walk through and stumble through life better every day, but resting in your perfection. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.